I'm Laura Coase, and this is CNN Tonight. And look, I got to get right to it. I know we're supposed to think about politics and other notions today, but I got to tell you about Alex Jones, because I've been thinking about it all day since I heard and watched that testimony. Alex Jones spent so many years trying to get people to believe in his conspiracy theories, to pretend that Sandy Hook, the tragedy never even happened at the precious lives that were lost, they somehow never even existed. He even said at one point that the parents were actors. I mean, obviously that's not only cruel, it's absurd because it did happen and they obviously existed. Well, you know, there might have been a kind of poetic justice that occurred today then because something else he claimed never existed, text messages and communications about Sandy Hook, well, it turns out they also exist. And the attorney for the parents of one victim suing Alex Jones for damages over his defamatory statements made sure that we all knew who was lying. So you did get my text messages. And it said you didn't. Nice trick. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Mr. Jones. Indeed. You didn't give this text message to me. You You don't know where this came from. Do you know where I got this? No. Mr. Jones, did you know that 12 days ago, 12 days ago, your attorneys messed up and sent me an entire digital copy of your entire cell phone with every text message you've sent for the past two years, and when informed, did not take any steps to identify it as privileged or protected in any way. And as of two days ago, it fell free and clear into my possession. And that is how I know you lied to me when you said you didn't have text messages about Sandy Hook. Did you know that? I See, I told you the truth. This is your Perry Mason moment. I gave them my phone. In discovery, you were asked, do you have Sandy Hook text messages on your phone? And you said no, correct? You said that under oath, Mr. Jones, didn't you? I mean, if I was mistaken, I was mistaken, but you, you got the messages right there. You know what perjury is, right? I just want to make sure you know before we go any further. You know what it is. I, I know what perjury is. I think laymen know what perjury is. I'm just going to recap that moment for a second, and we're going to ignore the attorney for Alex Jones chewing on the fingernail or the pictures of the judges on the wall who were smiling, you know, for their portraits, and yet looking down on this moment, which I can't help but imagine was anything other than, really? Well, Alex Jones' attorneys apparently sent all of their clients' text messages to the opposing counsel by accident, it seems. They didn't claim they were somehow privileged. I'm not sure what privilege would have attached to his own communication to people who were not lawyers, of course. Then the lawyer for the Sandy Hook parents used that information to catch Alex Jones in a lie. And he couldn't wriggle out of it. Even a mention of Perry Mason wasn't going to get you some sort of score and points. I think we call that all receipts. That's the legal term for what was happening just now. And his attempt to spin it like he wanted them to see those all along, pitiful, cruel. Or what was the question he asked about at the end? Perjury, right? We'll see what comes of that. After all, they asked him if he knew what it meant and even offered the chance to have him know his Fifth Amendment rights. But you want to know what you can buy these days with a a day late and a dollar short? A pretend epiphany. Because Jones now says that he's a believer that the 2012 shooting happened. 
it's 100% real, as I said on the radio yesterday, and as I said here yesterday, uh, it's 100% real, and the media still ran with lies that I was saying it wasn't real on air yesterday. It's incredible. They won't let me take it back. They just want to keep me in the position of being the Sandy Hook man. Wait, we won't let you take it back? The media? Really? I, I'm... I guess I'm trying to ask, how exactly do you take back years of reporting the spreading of outrageous lies like the ones you told? My gosh, it just pretty much didn't happen. The whole thing was fake. The whole thing is a giant hoax. And the problem is, how do you deal with a total hoax? You know, to top it all off, just before the jury began deliberating today, this clip from Jones's InfoWars show was played in court of him actually mocking those jurors. Extremely blue collar folks. I mean, half that jury panel does not know who I am. They, they, they said that. And when they were asked during the jury in paneling yesterday, you believe the media has ever got anything wrong about Alex Jones? They all unanimously said no. So it's people do live in all these different bubbles. And there's the bubbles that are awake and the bubbles that are questioning. But then there's the blue city bubbles where people do not know what planet they are on. Who doesn't know which planet we're on? And I'm going to leave alone the fact that he's talking about, in a pejorative way, those with blue collars. The man's in an electric blue shirt, so you technically have a blue collar. That's the jury of one's peers. But I'll, I'll leave that out for a second. I just wonder if that will stick with those jurors in the deliberation room. Because deliberations are now underway, and they say the, the truth shall set you free. Well, the funny thing is perjury has a way of locking you up. And the families, I think we all agree, still deserve a lot more. Let's take this around the table to my guests. Elliot Williams served as Deputy Assistant Attorney General at the DOJ. David Twerdlick is a senior staff editor at the New York Times Opinion Section. And Scott Jennings served as Special Assistant to President George W. Bush. Gentlemen, I'm not even going to ask the question whether any of you agree with what Alex Jones has done. I'm going to just take it for granted that we all agree that this happened. Sandy Hook occurred. The tragedy is deplorable, especially on the backdrop of thinking about Uvalde and Parkland and so many other school shootings. But I wonder from the more broader context, how is it that misinformation like this could have lasted this long? And how it's not until right now that it's held to account. There are people in this country who appear to be desperate for an explanation for anything just to defy what actually happened. If it's being reported by the news media, they're desperately looking for something. And then there are absolute evil people like Alex Jones who are willing to come along and feed it to them. Now, I know what planet we're on, and I know what planet he's on, planet moron, and the most evil guy in America today deserves to have the dumbest lawyers because that's what we saw and I'm glad they had his text messages. And I'm glad this jury is seeing what this guy is. And I hope they do everything to him that they can possibly do, both in the civil side and then possibly on the perjury side. Elliot's a lawyer, but I, I'm on this guy deserves everything, everything that he gets out of this. I mean, these people lost their kids. Mm -hmm. 
and were terrorized by this guy for years, it's outrageous. I mean, it's easy to think society's falling apart all around us. This jury can strike a blow for common American decency by doing everything they can do to this guy. Mm. Well, it's not just this jury. It's another one in Connecticut coming up after this. Because no matter... This is Texas, right? So um, no matter how this ends up for him, which doesn't look like it'll be pretty well, um, he still goes on to another state and another defamation suit. Look, there has got to be a cost for defaming and hurting innocent people. This wasn't political speech. And, And a lot of what his attorneys are talking about as well. This is the First Amendment. He had a right to engage on this. But it's not. It's because you know, You're targeting innocent individuals and not speaking out um, on a big uh, sort of broader political point. But no, it's terrible. Um, and it's perjury based on, what, based on what we saw there. I mean, it's, he's lied under oath with an intent to deceive. That's the perjury law in the state of Texas. And it's very straightforward. It's usually not as easy as just pulling an email up. I mean, the judge admonished him a couple times about the idea, especially because at one point I think he sort of criticizes her and the Infowars as well. I mean, there's if you could have had like a screenshot of a person who goes, oh, expletive here, <laughs> right? That was what you saw just now. I mean, I, I, I'm nosy, so I wanted to be the fly on the wall that saw that conversation between the attorney for Alex Jones afterwards that went, what, what do we mean we handed over everything? And yet that's the duty of an attorney during discovery. Yeah, that plaintiff's lawyer really put some mustard on it when he laid into yeah. Alex Jones on the stand there. And that clip you played, Laura, um, I agree with, with Scott. People believe what they want to believe. And this is a situation where there was a market for a conspiracy theory. And Alex Jones, according to uh, the judgments that he's already lost, fed that market need. And now this judgment, uh, this jury rather, has to decide how much it's worth. I will just add that in the bigger context, like you were talking about, whether it's birtherism, whether it's some of the things we saw on January 6th, we have a market now. People have free speech to be a right-wing talk show host, and people have a right to go to court and say, what you said defamed me. And I think that's where the rubber is meeting. And I think many people don't understand the difference between your conspiracy theory uncle on Facebook and people who are actually presenting news and information. It's not your personal uncle. He pointed not, at you not, when he said I that. Did, he, I did. Didn't, he didn't mean your personal conspiracy uncle. I just want to make well, sure. The, I we, don't, all have one, I we all have one. I don't, I don't know what goes on at Swerdlick family uh, Thanksgivings. However, um, were you to have an uncle uh, with conspiracy theories, a lot of people can't don't know the difference between the things and the lies that he's pushing and what's actual fact and real news. Well, that's, I think that's the Alex problem. Alex Jones fed into that, yeah. That, that's the problem. I mean, we're talking about more broadly. Take yeah. a step back, away from the tragedy of even Sandy Hook. And, yeah. that, and I can't even think about conspiracy theory and Sandy Hook in the same breath. Yeah. But there is a market and there's an appetite yeah. for misinformation, as long as it creates a self-fulfilling prophecy and, and feeds what you want to be true. I mean, that's what people are saying about from January 6th to election-related lies and beyond. And remember, when someone is feeding you something that, 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 that feeds into your belief or, or hope that, it's, that, that what you're being fed by the institutions is totally a lie, they're not doing it to help you. They're doing it to help themselves. I mean, we've learned in this case... He was making 800 grand a day at one point selling merchandise while peddling this garbage and hurting these innocent people. I mean, I got a six-year-old. Those parents that testified had a six-year-old kid. I got a six-year-old kid backstage right now, and I can't imagine what would happen to me if something happened to him, and I certainly can't imagine if somebody came along behind that and terrorized 
a family like he did. So remember, he's not doing it. Anybody feeding you this kind of conspiracy garbage, they're not doing it to help you. They're doing it to help themselves on your back. How does that make you feel? I mean, imagine a mother having to say on a stand that their child existed. I mean, we talk about the controversies of whether lives matter. Imagine having to say that your child existed because somebody wants to make money off the lie that they did not. More on this in a moment, everyone. Elliot Williams, thank you. David, Scott, stick with us as well. Look, barely after a month, barely a month after, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and the Dobbs decision, a red state, known as Kansas, sends an unexpected message. So what do Republicans do now after Kansas voters shut down a bid to end abortion rights? I'm going to ask a former U.S. attorney for Kansas, appointed by then-President Trump. You know what? His personal views might just surprise you. That's next. Voters in deep red Kansas resoundingly voted against an amendment to strip abortion protections from the state constitution. President Biden today sounding pretty confident that it's a harbinger for the midterms. The voters of Kansas sent a powerful signal that this fall, the American people will vote to preserve and protect the right and refuse to let them be ripped away by politicians. And my administration has their back. I wonder if he'll be right. After all, you have to consider, this took place in a state that hasn't voted for a Democratic presidential candidate in more than a half a century since the Texan, LBJ, that voted for Donald Trump, as you know, by a margin of nearly 15 points back in 2020. The same president that gave the high court the supermajority that then overturned Roe v. Wade and the Dobbs decision. And yet, having said all that, the outcome far exceeded expectations, thanks to a very high turnout. More than 900,000 voters showed up. That counts for nearly half, nearly half of the state's registered voters, a level you'd usually see in what, a general election? The fight, however, is not over. And I want to bring in Stephen McAllister, a University of Kansas law professor and the former Solicitor General of the state of Kansas. Stephen, I'm glad you're here because, you know, you actually argued as Solicitor General in Kansas um, in the case that the Supreme Court in Kansas ultimately said, hey, there is a recognized right to abortion in Kansas. That was what started this now ballot initiative. What's your reaction that this was not passed? I'm actually overjoyed. Uh, I'm very pleased that the amendment was rejected. When I argued the case, uh, there was federal law in place that would protect a woman's right to an abortion. Kansas Supreme Court had never decided whether there was such a right under the Kansas Constitution. My job at the time was to argue the position the attorney general took, which was to argue there was no such right under the Kansas Constitution. So that was the position we argued. But I also assumed, as a personal matter, that there would always be a federal level of protection. I never anticipated that the court would overrule Rowan Casey like it did this year. You know, so many people had that same philosophy, that there was always going to be sort of that backdrop of a 50-year precedent of Roe v. Wade. And, of course, that did not happen. It was overturned, as you know. But the fact that you're overjoyed, the idea that many people are, by the way, but there was a huge margin. And for many, that's pretty stunning. I mean, it seems that there's a, a disconnect, as was always thought, between what Justice Alito wrote about the idea of returning to states and the notion that 
people were not overwhelmingly against abortion access. Did Kansas sort of prove that? Well, I think Kansas did sort of prove that. And I think what, what Dobbs did is energize the people. And Kansas just fortuitously had this on the ballot. It was actually set up for this ballot back in the January session of 2021. So it had been planned way in advance of, in advance of Dobbs. That when the legislature put this up for a vote, they did not know that Dobbs was going to happen. So it's sort of fortuitous. But once Dobbs happened it really energized a lot of people in Kansas. And I think what we saw was at least three groups, uh, young voters, Democrats, and independents who flocked to the primary polls. And those three groups generally don't Mm -hmm. because the only contested primaries in Kansas typically are Republican primaries. You don't think though that although this was not, you know, started, the catalyst was not Dobbs, you don't really think that it was a genuine effort by Republicans in Kansas to try to get this amendment. You think there was something more to it? Well, they wanted this amendment because they wanted to overturn the Kansas Supreme Court decision. But I think when they started that process, they didn't realize that if they could do that, they could actually ban abortion because they assumed the federal level protection would still be there. So I think they were probably delighted when they saw that Dobbs overruled Rowan Casey because now the real end goal was actually achievable in their view. Mm. But what they did is engage in a misleading campaign in which they kept saying, all this will do is allow us to have our current laws be enforceable. They would not say we're going to ban abortion in the next legislative session, although it's clear that was the goal. On, well, on that notion, I mean, you were a clerk for Justice Clarence Thomas. Um, and I wonder your perspective, given his opinion, where he spoke about going even further than Alito, the idea of where Alito tried to say, look, I'm just talking about abortion here, which I don't know how you're going to carve that out in reality. He wanted to go farther to same-sex marriage, possibly, and other birth control and contraceptives. It, what did you make of that decision and that statement to go even further than what was written in the majority? Well, I think Justice Thomas has always had a different view of where these rights come from. So if I, could, if I put on my constitutional law professor hat, the majority is talking about something called substantive due process. He's looking at the privileges or immunities clause in the 14th Amendment, which the court got away from way back in the 1870s. So he's willing to revisit everything going all the way back. Nobody else seems inclined to join him in that enterprise. So I'm hoping they stick to that view and that he's the only one that's interested in revisiting that territory. So I may have a little more confidence than some that he's alone in that potential Mm -hmm. endeavor and that the rest of them have no desire to revisit those other precedents. I mean, I hope we're, we're banking on more than fingers and toes crossed, though, on something like that. It's personal to you as well. I mean, I know that in the past you have been demonstra- demonstrative of your principles when you don't think it should go beyond that. Right. And I have, so, I mean, this, this mattered a lot to me. So the one time when I was working for the Attorney's General Office that I refused to participate in a case was when we were defending the ban on same-sex marriage, and I offered to resign if I was asked to defend that ban because I said I could not do that because I had family members and friends and I would not defend that. Um, He said, you don't have to resign. I have plenty of lawyers, but I would have resigned. Um, And with this one, you know, having five daughters and now with the protections of Rowan Casey gone for the last three weeks, I've been pretty much nonstop in interviews and things basically trying to say the proponents are misleading people. 
It started with the name of the amendment, it's the wording of the amendment, and all of the campaign literature and the money that's being spent is an effort to fool the people of Kansas, but obviously yesterday they were not fooled. They were not fooled. Dorothy Gale woke up in Kansas and she recognized everyone in the room for what they were. Thank you, Stephen McAllister. I appreciate it so much. My pleasure. Let's take what we just heard and consider the fallout with tonight's political experts. Do reproductive rights become, excuse me, even more of a deciding factor in the midterms? Right back with that. No surprise, Democrats and Republicans are offering two different takes on the Kansas abortion vote and its political impact. What happened in Red Kansas last night is a reflection of what is happening across the country and what will continue to occur through the November elections. I think voters come November will be very focused on the cost of gasoline and groceries and and, and rent. This is not going to make any difference. I don't think it'll be bigger than inflation. I wonder who's right. Let's ask my guest, Abby Finkenauer and David Swerdlick and Scott Jennings. Listen, first, I want to get your reactions. I mean, we see the different sort of inkblot tests happening of what happened in Kansas. But it's a pretty big deal that this did not pass. You're smiling. You're like, yes, that's right. <laughs> I mean, dare I say it? I, I had some hope last mm. night. And I think that's one of, you know, not just women in their healthcare and abortion rights being protected as a win, but also just the hope that it's given to Democrats across the country that we can get these wins and we need them. Um, I think the other big thing, too, when you look at this is we've got to be looking at it also about how they talked about it in Kansas. I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned. It was talking about government mandates. It was talking about the extremism. It was talking about, you know, keeping women safe. And that is something, again, I think is important for Democrats and folks across the country to pay attention to and how we move forward here and get some very big wins in November. So how do you message it differently on the Republican side? Well, a couple of things that stood out to me. The turnout was large. I mean, it was a lot of votes in this election and it was a big price tag. Both sides spent a lot of money. And so uh, it drove up, drove up the vote totals. I did read the ballot initiative today several times uh, in preparation for our discussion. I still don't understand it. It was extraordinarily confusing. And I think, and I think Scott, the voters and, weren't confused though, Scott. Well, I mean, how do you know? I mean, I mean, I, I'll be honest with you. I think most people on constitutional amendments start out at a default no. And if they don't understand what they're reading on the paper, they're going to stay there. And well, I will that's also, why they give you a sample ballot for people who are walking in. They go, what am I doing here? And they read down. I know we're all educated voters, but you've had the moment you go, sample ballot, please. Oh, here's the, oh, this is the answer. Great. It happens. I don't think it happened here, though, you're saying. I, I think there were a number of reasons why it went down. And I do think that people who are pro-life walked into that thing yesterday. Some of them had to have voted against it because there are people who describe themselves as being pro-life, but, but don't necessarily want to take part in a ballot initiative that they think wouldn't allow for reasonable exceptions. And I, and I think that, and that's where the political reality of the pro-life movement, I think, is going to run into, uh, the yep. pro-life is, is going to run into the political reality of America, 
that's where the equilibrium is going to be some, someday in the future. Yeah, those exceptions are the thing. So I think both of those members of Congress that you played the clip, Laura, were both right. This is both not the most important issue. Gallup just came out with its numbers, and uh, the abortion issue ranked fourth in their latest polling behind the economy and overall government leadership and inflation. On the other hand, I think Republicans here lost the slippery slope uh, advantage they had before the Dobbs decision. Before the Supreme Court got rid of Roe, Republicans have the slippery slope argument. Is it going to be 20 weeks that it's allowed? Is it 22? Is it, is it late term? Now Democrats have the slippery slope argument where their voters and some swing voters are saying, look, what's going to happen next? Are we going to have travel bans? Yeah. Is there going to be no exceptions for rape and incest? Um, is the court going to do away with the Obergefell decision? Where does it all end? And that, I think, is playing to Democrats' advantage. I don't think yeah. it's going to save their there's their yeah. House majority, but I do think they have something to run. Well, on that note about who it saves, and remember, I mean, Kansas is overwhelmingly red, so obviously this was not Democratic voters alone who were voting in this way, regardless how you think that it is. But, you know, we think about that reasonableness or the bipartisan endeavors. Listen to what Congressman Adam Kinzinger had to say about the idea of, look, don't come to me in the future about having and finding where are all the good Republicans, so to speak. Here's what he had to say. I mean, here's the thing. Don't keep coming to me asking where are all the good Republicans that defend democracy and then take your donors money and spend half a million dollars promoting one of the worst election deniers that's out there. I mean, you know, the DCCC needs to be ashamed of themselves. You know, you made the point, Scott, that there was a lot of money on both sides and a variety of issues. I think to his point, it's the idea of, I mean, are, are, are Democrats not only slippery slope argument, are they cutting off their nose despite their face and alienating those who might otherwise be more agreeable? Well, I'm, I mean, he's speaking about these races where uh, Democrats have invested in these people that they have heretofore claimed are threats to democracy that are fundamentally going to destroy America as we know it. But here, take our money and, and we'll promote you. I mean, where does this end? I'll tell you where it ends, with Democrat strategists deciding in 2024 we should run against Donald Trump. He's the weakest Republican, so let's prop him up, just like some people did in 2016. That's where this ends. So if you want to tell us, Republicans, you've got to get rid of these people out of your party, don't prop them up. Let our voters get rid of them instead of what or, happened like or, in Michigan and elsewhere. Or hear me out. Just kick them out of your party. I mean, when they How do you are... Do that? How do you do that when a guy in Michigan <laughs> raises zero dollars and your party shows still, up with hundreds of thousands still, of dollars to probably... You're How do you allowing this guy into your primary. What do you mean allow? As He's allowed to run. this Hold guy on, is voice. associating himself with the GOP and your party is allowing him to be a Republican and he is not attached with reality, that is the problem you are going to continue to face because these election deniers have become so mainstream in this Republican and party. And how do you get rid of them? It's who Beating they them. are you now. Beat them. I wish you beat there them. were more Liz Cheney's, but there's see. not. Let me see if I can split the difference between the Congresswoman and Scott here. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, look, this is if, be this, interesting. if this backfires on Democrats and they don't win some of these races where they've funded the Trumpier candidate, then come November, they will look bad. Okay, on the other hand, Democrats right now, and I think this is partly to the Congresswoman's point, are both the progressive and the moderate party. And the Republican Party is mostly captured by Trumpism, except for a few uh, Republicans okay. on the oh, edge. No, wait, yeah. wait, wait a second. So, <laughs> I got to go. Wait, thank you very sure. I got to go. <laughs> I left a cliffhanger there. And you want to watch the next thing, don't you? Stick around, everyone. 
Abby, David, and Scott. Thank you. Thanks. The next question, of course, is can tr- former Trump lawyer Pat Cipollone offer more insight than what he told the January 6th committee? We'll look at the DOJ's new subpoenas and the criminal probe. That's next. Federal prosecutors are going to get to court to and get some pretty interesting testimony and evidence from big names in the Trump administration. A pair of top Trump White House lawyers, Pat Cipollone and his top deputy, Patrick Philbin, have been subpoenaed. The DOJ wants them both to testify before a federal grand jury investigating what happened on January 6th. My next guest is a former federal prosecutor who is now running for Congress in New York. He also served on the opposing side of Pat Cipollone as counsel to the Democratic House in the first Trump impeachment. Daniel Goldman, welcome to the program. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I'm glad you're here. I've been wanting to pick your brain about this in particular, because I know that the way people speak about a Pat Cipollone of the day is the idea of being forthright and candid and talking about all these measures, although it took some time post Cassidy Hutchinson. But I bet you have a different recollection of his role that he's played in the idea of transparency. Am I right? You are exactly correct. In in my view, Pat Cipollone is no hero simply because he tried to stop the president of the United States from inciting a riot on the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, in fact, during the first impeachment, as you remember, Cipollone was very involved in both the Ukraine scheme that Donald Trump was executing, uh, as well as the cover-up, where he facilitated placing that whistleblower complaint in the super-classified Uh, system so that nobody would be able to see it. And then he was involved in creating and drafting the uh, memo to cover up and prevent the uh, intelligence uh, community's inspector general from turning over the whistleblower complaint. So he both had a factual knowledge of Donald Trump's abuse of power, and he also was integrally involved in covering it up uh, during that first impeachment. You know, interestingly enough, many of the, the, the players you're talking about now, agencies, inspector generals, Secret Service, communications, all these things, have somehow found them way back, their way back into the discussion of today. And I do wonder on those issues of privilege or confidentiality, what does it say to you that there seems to be this ramping up of sorts to prepare for and anticipate somebody asserting a privilege of some kind. I mean, I know that he had the testimony from the January 6th committee, but are, is there some validity to the proposition that they actually might be able to assert a privilege? I don't think that ultimately the privilege would bear out if this were to go to court. Uh, and that the Department of Justice is much better situated to litigate the privileges that Cipollone seemed to claim during his deposition before the January 6th committee. Um, You do not have attorney-client privilege or executive privilege uh, if you are are having conversations related to misconduct or crime or fraud. And there's a very good argument to to be had that many of Cipollone's relevant conversations with Donald Trump about his efforts to overturn the election Uh, We're not kosher, so to speak. And so um, the Department of Justice could press Cipollone to give more information than what the January 6th committee did, 
And if he refuses, they can go to court and they can litigate this to where Cipollone would have to tell the court what privileges he was using for what testimony or documents. And the court would decide whether or not there's exception to those privileges. But remember, Laura, the privilege, executive privilege must be claimed and asserted by the president, not by the person uh, who was the president spoke to. So we're going to have to actually have a formal assertion of executive privilege by Donald Trump, which then Joe Biden will rule on before ultimately the Department of Justice presses Cipollone further. Well, as they say, it's good to be the king. And the person who actually has that role of the president is President Joe Biden. He's already said he's not going to assert the privilege. But I am really curious to see how this is going to go going forward. Daniel Goldman, I'm glad to talk to you. I had a feeling you had a different viewpoint about how this might go. Thank you for being a part of the program. Thank you so much for having me. So look, we, we know. Trump and his inner circle call the investigations into January 6th. Remember this? Decided witch hunt. This is a partisan political witch hunt. It is absolutely a witch hunt. This is witch hunt 3.0. Nothing but a political witch hunt. Well, let me remind you what a real witch hunt once looked like. Can we go back to 1693 for a second? Salem witch trials? 19 people hanged for stating the obvious, that they weren't witches. 55 others confessed. Obviously, under extreme pressure, they were convicted but spared. One of them, Elizabeth Johnson Jr., the only woman whose name had not been cleared. Why am I talking about it? Because now her name has been cleared. It took an eighth-grade civics teacher and her students to convince state lawmakers to finally clear Johnson. So as much as Trump and his allies do like to use the term, and perhaps others more colloquially, the term witch hunt, the only part of January 6th that really resembles what happened, say, in Salem, well, was this shot of a gallows erected for Mike Pence. Coming up, a much different legal battle. The NFL is now appealing the suspension of Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson. Is his punishment for alleged sexual misconduct too light? Bob Costas joins me next. The NFL tonight is appealing the six-game suspension handed down to Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson. The decision comes after a former judge found that he violated the league's personal conduct policy in various private meetings with massage therapists. Those meetings led dozens of women to file sexual harassment and assault lawsuits against him. Originally, the league pushed for a full-season suspension. So what will Commissioner Roger Goodell decide now? Let's talk about it with Bob Costas tonight. Bob, nice to see you. I got to know, I mean, first of all, Mm -hmm. we learned about an appeal. Who are they appealing to? Is it back to another sort of arbitration or a retired judge? What's What's the deal? No. No, under the terms of the new collective bargaining agreement, or at least the portion of the agreement that uh, concerns cases like this, if there is an appeal, it goes either to Commissioner Roger Goodell or his designee. And whatever either Goodell or the designee decides is supposed to be binding on both sides. 
in theory, if the NFL Players Association didn't like the outcome of the appeal, they could go to a civil court. But that would appear to be unlikely. So it's either Goodell or his designee who will make the decision. The league had asked for a full season suspension, actually an indefinite suspension, because they feel there's a possibility that additional accusers could come forward and they might have a different view of the severity of the case. Now, Judge Robinson, the former federal judge who decided this case, termed uh, Watson's behavior as both predatory and egregious, but she based what seems to be a relatively light sentence on the fact that previous penalties for what she termed nonviolent sexual misconduct did not exceed six games. So she gave him the six games. The league feels that, A, just as a matter of what's right, that's too light, but also they have a public relations concern. Mm. This looks terrible for the league, especially, uh, not solely, but perhaps especially among its ever-growing female fan base. So they know that they have to address this issue, otherwise they have a public relations problem. I mean, I even heard, I think Robert Kraft made the comment, this was an embarrassment. Of course, there's, we can leave aside sort of the, the glass house that might be involved in that commentary of him. But the idea of it being the, the embarrassment to the league, do you think that they will cave to the pressure and is it appropriate to do so? Well, I, I think they will, they will decide, either Goodell or his designee likely will decide on a more severe penalty. Keep a couple of things in mind. First of all, for whatever it may be worth, two grand juries in Texas declined to indict uh, Watson on any of these charges. He remains almost defiant, say he ne- saying he never did anything wrong. He never disrespected any woman. He's innocent of these charges. Meanwhile, last year, He was, in effect, on administrative leave while some of these things were adjudicated, and he received $10 million in pay from the Houston Texans. Then his team never played a single game. The way his current contract is structured, he received a $45 million signing bonus, which cannot be touched during a suspension. And they purposely arranged it so that this first year of the deal, anticipating suspension, he makes barely a million dollars. So the deal itself is worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and he's pocketed 45 million up front, and all he would lose in a six-game suspension is $340,000. Taking all of this together, and the pattern of behavior, and the number of accusers, uh, the public isn't buying this as an equitable penalty. At least I wouldn't think so. And Bob, I mean, this deal, the contract he has, which includes guaranteed money, as you're talking about, it was signed when these allegations were at least in part out there. It wasn't as if they were blindsided by this, right? That's right. That's right. Look, we know this. Uh, They can say all they want. We believe in Deshaun as a person and he'll be his best version of himself. What they're really looking for is the best version of Deshaun Watson, the football player. And let's hope he stays out of trouble and stays uh, off the front pages of the newspaper and confines his activities to the sports pages. That's what they're hoping for, because he's a good player when he's playing at his best. But this is this is something that doesn't sit well with most of the public. Now, what the league could do, they could say or. Goodell, in this case, Goodell or whoever he designates, could say, look, we'll make it 10 games or 12 games and we'll add a substantial fine. And maybe the baseline for that fine is $10 million, which is the amount he collected from the Houston Texans last year without playing a single game. So then he only gets $35 million left. I mean, the idea of just the, the way that the money makes the world go round. Bob Costas, really fascinating to think about this. I wonder, is there, what are the other players saying about this? Are you getting a sense of how this is impacting how other players in the league are viewing this? 
you know, it's very rare for players to speak out publicly like, hey, this is terrible and, and we need a harsher penalty. Uh, some may feel that way. By and large, once a guy is in the locker room and he's your teammate, if he can help you win, then people are generally on board with that. And if they have private misgivings, they generally keep it private. I guess some would say that's the way the game is played. Bob Costas, thank you so much. Thanks for watching. I'll be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.